Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to be speaking with Michael Miucci. He's going to tell us his story about how he had to uh, reset the sales team, where he went from 13 reps and leveled the playing field down to zero and then bringing the, te the team back up. Then we're also going to talk about how to set targets and moving from an individual contributor to leading the sales team. And next week, we're going to be speaking with Red Rusak, who's going to share with us what to do as a company's first salesperson and how to find a pricing model that works for you, as well as taking off the price from the website. This is going to be a great episode today with Michael, so uh, please enjoy. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Hi, everyone. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to ask for your help. I want to hear your feedback about the podcast so that I could make it better and more relevant to you. Send me your thoughts or questions you would like to have answered to adam at startupsales.io or use the Get in Touch link on the website, startupsales.io. Of course, I am also available on LinkedIn. Just search for Adam Springer. Looking forward to delivering you more and more impactful and helpful interviews. Michael, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Can you give me a little bit of uh, an intro onto, onto who Michael is and how you got into sales? Sure. Um, so I, I fell into sales and, and you know I, I look back at my history with Arcadia. I've, I've been at Arcadia for almost 10 years uh, and, and for a number of years, our our leadership asked me to move into the sales world, and, and I was really reluctant. Uh, and looking back, I wish I would have taken their advice earlier. But I took a, a little bit of a non-traditional path. I started a technology company on the implementation side, uh, quickly demonstrated my capabilities as an account manager. I moved into the product strategy side of the business and helped build out some of our early, early technology offerings. And from there, we were trying to build a sales team, and I, I moved into this an interstitial role where I was sitting between the product team, the sales team, and operations. You know, now we call that a sales engineer, but at the time I was just a solution consultant, and and that was my first real exposure into sales. And I think as it goes, I realized that I thought I could do this better than our sales reps, and eventually took on a territory and was very successful as a territory owner, and then took on a, a larger territory and and now own the the sales team. Okay. And so how did that transition go? How did you become the, the leader of the sales? Good question. I think, I think part of it was I, as I was owning, you know, what my first region, I owned the, the Northeast region in the United States, which was, you know, eight states or so. And then from there grew into owning the Eastern half of the United States. And as I made the transition from the, the Northeast region to the, to the full East coast or East of the Mississippi, really, uh, I had to build a small team. I, I hired a sales engineer. I hired um, I hired some additional administrative support, and and really worked to make sure that we were functioning as a pod. And I think that was the first opportunity for my company's leadership to see my ability to to hire and train and cultivate talent. So that was that was the 
the starting point for me to, to really build into owning the sales team as a whole. There was a, a conversation probably about two years ago with our CEO where he asked me what I, what I wanted to do moving forward. And I hadn't really thought of uh, sales leadership as one of my pathways. I really enjoyed being a, an individual contributor. I was, I was very good at it. I still am very good at it. Um, and I didn't want to give up the ability to connect with our customers. And so he and I started talking about, you know, what does it look like to build out a sales team and, and what does it look like to be a sales manager? And over probably six months, we, we sketched out a role that would still let me have, you know, day-to-day -day interaction with our customers, um, but also take some of my successes in building and cultivating talent in, in my pod and, and bring it across, uh, bring it across the country into our, into our, our total market. Um, so it was a, it was an interesting, interesting transition as I went from managing two to, you know, now 12, but we didn't have the 12 at the time. You know, we only had three or four folks in the sales department. So a big part of the transition was actually building the right hiring profiles, building the training program and, and trying to scale what we did with the, the two folks in my region and, and bringing it across to a much larger team. Okay. So let's, before we dive in deeper into that, I want to kind of give a little bit of understanding uh, to everybody listening here. You guys are kind of like a SaaS CRM for the healthcare uh, industry, and your contracts are multi-year contracts, generally in the millions uh, a year. Is that correct? That's right. How long is the sales cycle there? Average sales cycle is just under 12 months <clears throat> from, from the point of qualification to uh, deal close. It can take us 300 days for opportunity identification. You know, we're, we're a platform that hospitals and provider groups and health plans purchase to manage population health. So kind of the, the health of a collection of, of individuals focused on whole person care. Um, and and there's, there's a, there are a lot of organizations that, are, that know they need to invest in platforms like ours, but they're not ready to start that cycle. Um, and so you typically have anywhere from, you know, 18 months to a year where you're talking to a prospect and, and trying to understand when they're going to start to make this purchase. And then once they engage in a buying cycle from either RFP release or, you know, really engaging in a cycle, it's typically, you know, nine to 12 months from that point to contract signature. Wow. So you could be working with a prospect for about a year before they even start the sales process. Absolutely. Yeah. We have, we have some prospects, especially in our larger enterprise deals where, you know, the, the point where they release their first RFI to the point where we engaged has been well over 30 months. Okay. And so during this, because you have so much time, you really get a chance to build a relationship with these people. Uh, are you and your sales team, do you guys consider yourself as uh, like more consultative uh, sales reps or how, how do you guys look at that? Oh, absolutely. Very much, very much a consultative sale. You know, there's the, kind of extending the CRM analogy, you know, anyone can go buy Salesforce and with the click of a button, they have Salesforce available. Uh, and then you can go spend, you know, endless amounts of funds customizing your Salesforce instance. And, and that's, that's really a great analogy for our platform, except you can't click a button and turn it on. It does require a lot of customization. I don't have any two customers whose implementations are identical, uh, not even close. So, Part of part of my team's job is to understand, you know, what is what is our customer's strategic priority, what is their what is their transition pathway from, you know, the legacy 
the legacy healthcare in, environment in the United States where you're, you're treating a symptom or an episode to really treating a whole person. And how does that translate into their reimbursement model? And then that will influence how we configure our platform so that administrators in, in the healthcare arena can say, hey, this is how I'm performing on my contracts. This is how I'm going to make uh, surplus or margin in this current fiscal year. How do they want to uh, how do they want to set up workflow tools for providers and care teams on the ground, you know, for day-to-day -day tasking? And then how do you build the back-end data structures so that that the the folks who are supporting both the administrators and the care teams have the the research and 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 analytics tools to support the needs of those stakeholder groups? So it's a it's a really long consultative sales cycle where a big part of the handoff from the from the salesperson to the implementation teams is a is a pretty comprehensive specifications uh, and customer needs document so that they can understand how to how to configure and build this platform. Wow. Very interesting. It's very uh, complex. I'm sure there's a lot of people that have their hands on the deal uh, at any given time. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we, we've tried to there's this balance of having too many individuals involved in the deal versus having too few. Um, some of our competitors will bring 15 individuals to uh, to a demo, and and we've heard a lot of negative feedback around that because then then the customer thinks that they're just paying for your excessive staffing. Um, but on the on the flip side, if you don't have the right subject matter experts in the room, you know, you you lose that opportunity where you've got the C-suite sitting there looking at your solution. Um, so we we try and balance it. We, we addressed a lot of that problem by building a really competent set of um, sales leaders in, in the region. So individuals who have who've proven expertise in this market and have, and have sold these solutions. But then we've invested really heavily in just really competent, experienced sales engineers who, you know, I've got one on the team who's much more technical so they can help with the technical diligence. I have one who is much more of a generalist and understands business, uh, the business of healthcare contracts, provider workflow, and then, and then they, are the, they are the gatekeepers with the, the sales leader to understand you know, which subject matter experts do we bring in. But we try and limit the folks who touch a deal to five because then you, you don't have the, the difficulties of how do, you, how do you translate information across multiple stakeholders. And it, it makes it seem like we're a tight kind of well-oiled machine. Yeah, definitely. And it, having different people involved though has its benefits because then you could uh, in introduce layering uh so that if the deal starts to lose momentum you could have somebody else reach out from another angle and try to get things rolling again absolutely yeah i mean there's there's a couple different domains that we're, we're typically working with a prospect on there's there's the sales director who's managing the qualification the deal flow you know the the procurement cycle and and building the the overarching relationship you've got your sales sales engineer who is is leading technical diligence and uh, also the diligence around the adoption and training process. Typically, our product team gets involved at least once uh, during the sales cycle, and, and they're managing you know, expectations around custom development or, or platform extension. Um, and then we have a chief medical officer who's, who's always building a relationship with the medical leadership on our, on our prospects team. Uh, to help understand how they how they intend to use the platform from a from a clinical setting, so you you have a a really well rounded team, and between the four or five of those people, there's there's always a follow up that we can be we we can be pushing for to keep the deal alive and moving yeah. forward. 
All right, so let's let's go back to more of the beginning of our our conversation. Uh, and you told me before this interview that while you guys were setting this up and setting up a sales organization that you've hit many roadblocks. Can you tell us what some of those roadblocks are that you that you hit uh, while setting everything up? Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think the the biggest roadblock roadblock for the organization was you know we're we are, uh, you know, a, a 15 year old company. Uh, we've not always done what we do. We started, we started off as a, a systems integration consultancy and that was, you know, my first role in the company and pivoted into providing a software technology platform. One of the challenges in that transition, uh, that, that we really wrestled with was, was product rationalization. So when, when I start, I first moved into the sales team as that solutions consultant, I was supporting a team of. 13 direct contributor representatives across the country. And, and we had a really wide product portfolio that, that frankly was, was way too large for a company of our size at that time. You know, we're probably a $15 million company, maybe $20 million, $20 million company with, you know, 200 or so, or 200 or so employees, but, you know, a product suite that, that rivaled, you know, the, the largest healthcare services companies in the country. So, you know, one of the biggest challenges was just convincing product leadership and, and company leadership that we needed to, we needed to look at our portfolio of products and really focus in on, on what we did best and everything else we had to, to stop selling. And whether that meant that we, we, uh, we sold off assets of the company to other, to other organizations, which we did, or, uh, you know, sunset certain products, which we also did. Uh, that was really critical to enabling a sales team for success because you could have a really highly curated team of of professional sellers selling a a solution set that we could we could definitively say we are excellent at. So we, I, I I liken the transition from being a multifunction you know printer fax scanner kind of tool to to being you know the the industry wide draft printer that you know every publisher wants to have, uh, and that was a that was a really tough transition because you had to get board buy-in, our leadership buy-in, you had to rationalize the fact that we'd see a dip in revenue as we, as we sunset or jettison other, other product and service lines. Um, but looking back, it was probably the, the biggest key to our current success was rationalizing that product set. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. You gotta, you gotta learn how to focus, but it's always hard to say goodbye to, to money that was already coming in and work that was Absolutely. already done. Yeah. I think the other an, another big roadblock was uh, we would all too often get enamored by a Rolodex when we'd hire a sales director, and I think that that's that's something that a lot of small companies really struggle with is they 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 have a challenge around opportunity identification, um, and, and they see this sales professional who comes in with twenty years of sales experience, and they can you know in an interview name. 50 CEOs who they, you know, golf with or, you know, went to their kids' weddings or, you know, whatever kind of factoid they use to prove that they really know these individuals. And we did that, you know, we, we fell into that, into that, that challenge. We hired these folks who said, I know all these people, I can get all these meetings. Um, and, and, and in our industry, there's, there's really no nepotism. No one is buying because their friend is selling it. Um, and so we had this team of individuals and that, that team I referenced, the 13, you know, we lost all of those. Um, and, and, and a lot of organizations, a lot of individuals in our organization wanted to say that 
we didn't hire the right people or they weren't skilled sellers. But I looked at the situation when I took over the sales team of, you know, that may or may not have been the case. But for us to to chalk up that failure to only the talent that we hired and not really looking back internally at what could we have done better uh, would have been short-sighted. And that was a big part of my transition into sales leadership is working with my team to say, you know, we we've come a long way in five years as we've rationalized our products, our pricing, we've defined our market, we know what our ideal prospect profile looks like. But what I what I don't think we addressed was, you know, having the right tools for sellers to be successful. I don't think we had a great target list per territory. We didn't have a ton of sales support. So part of my charter as I built the team over the last, you know, six months of 2017 was putting in place a foundation and some of those tools so that when sale sellers hit the ground, they knew who they needed to sell to. We had a robust training program. We had some automation tools and we had the right, you know, both human and technology support for those individuals to be successful. Um, and, I, and it's been a really nice build because I think the, the team on the ground feels like they have a lot more support than they would have otherwise had. Now, I mean, I'm sure you talk to any of my sellers, there's, there's more that they want, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a continuous evolution. Yeah. I think it's uh, what you said before is you had to ask those hard questions. And I think that's what makes us a good salesperson a good salesperson is being able to self-reflect, ask, what did I do wrong? What did we do wrong? How can we make things change instead of just blaming it on somebody else? Absolutely. It's funny you say that because I, I always tell my sellers, and this is, this is a, a mantra that I held myself to, but if you, if you lose a deal, uh, it's no one's fault but your own. Um, you can't say the product wasn't good enough. The, the team wasn't good enough. Uh, the prospect was an idiot, you, whatever the case, because you, you need to be able to reflect on what could I have done differently in that sales cycle to, to emerge on top. And, and, you know, I think a lot of sellers don't want to hear that, but I always say, you know, if you want to, if you want to ride around when you win a deal celebrating and having everyone say, you know, what a great job you did and, and take home the big commission check, you have to be willing to swallow the pill when you don't win to say, what could I have done differently to, to emerge victoriously? And I think it's really important to do that on an individual basis and also on a company basis. Absolutely. Now you said that you, you had a team of 13 reps, uh, but you lost them. What, where, how did you lose them? Well, so, uh, when we, this is back, you know, kind of in that transition, 2012, 2013, um, a couple of them left on their own. You know, they they couldn't hit their numbers. They realized they weren't going to be able to hit their earning potential. Um, as we as we went into rationalizing the product suite and trying to determine, uh, you know, what it what it was we were going to be as a company when we grew up, uh, we we let a number of them go um, as a as an organization, mostly because they didn't have anything to sell and they weren't selling and they weren't going to be able to hit their quota. And so it became a a really expensive endeavor for us to manage. Um, and that's, we went into, a, I would say, almost an incubation phase myself and our, our VP of, of business development. Now, he and I were the, the two primary sellers. And we took it on ourselves to say, let's, let's figure out what it is that we, we are good at, what we do, what our customers really like from us, and build, start to build the foundation of, of that technology sales kit. That's a, that's a really tough, tough business decision to just cut your losses and, and start fresh. Yeah, it was. I mean, luckily or fortunately, I was I was not in a leadership position at that point, so I I was I was observing from the sidelines. Um, but it was definitely not. I know that that there was a, and I think it was like a Black Tuesday where a, a lot of folks did not get news that they liked about 
the their future with the company. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sink or swim, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and I think what was interesting about that is it, it, it helped me realize kind of very early on that you know, the, the decisions that we make as leaders impact, you know, how, a, how an individual can provide for their families. And so that was a big part of, you know, when I asked those hard questions of what's, what's different now, when we decided to build a bigger sales team again, you know, a year ago or so, I had to say what's different because I didn't want to go and make commitments and promises around salaries and OTEs and market opportunity that we couldn't defend, you know, a year later. And that's been a, a big part of our, our mission and strategy on the sales team is if we're going to say your OTE can be, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, I want to make sure that they realize that that's not just me kind of waving my finger in the air, that it's, it's empirical, it's based in fact, and I can show the pathway to get there. Yeah. Uh, it's important not to just uh, just throw numbers out there to, to stand behind them. All right. So you said that uh, it was just you and one other person left uh, to start start from scratch and build the build the team over again. Uh, so it was just the two of you. There was the two of us, and then we had a we had kind of a an analyst sales ops guy who was helping us on the Salesforce front. Um, and then, you know, what we, what we realized given our business is that we, we did very well in structured procurement processes, these RFPs that come out. Um, so the first, the first add to the team that we made was a, was a, an RFP analyst who had full responsibility for, you know, kind of processing RFPs as they came into the organization. So he, he built a library of RFP content. He's helped kind of build the process around the way that we, uh, respond and act to RFPs, obviously with the sales director at the, at the forefront, building the relationship with the customer, but all of the technical responses, gathering feedback from different parts of the company, whether it's finance or security or product or implementation, you know, our RFP analyst is, is sitting at the hub there, kind of pulling all that information together, formatting it, um, and making sure that we meet all the requirements uh, of that cycle. So that was one of the, the first hires that we made to the team. Um, and, and for a long time, it was, it was really just that, um, we did, you know, over, over those couple of years attempt at, at bringing in additional sales talent. We had, we had some success there and that's helped us refine the hiring model. Um, but there, there's two compounding forces that I think we struggled with as additional challenges. The first being really nailing down what talent we needed in the organization. And, and I still think even though we, we had this, this big team that we lost, the, the 13, I still think we got enamored by Rolodexes. Um, and so we made that mistake a couple more times. Uh, and then I think the second one is the market was relatively lumpy and immature. Uh, and we were just not, we were not realistic at setting growth targets. Um, so we had some excellent sellers who said, you know, I, I can't sell what you guys need me to sell and, and chose on their own to move on. So again, when I, when I kind of assumed the leadership perspective, you know, I, I took uh, an individual that I had hired when I was running the, the East Coast region as a, as a sales ops leader, and I, I put him into sales ops for the entire organization. And we took a much different strategy toward planning and setting targets and quotas, both based on, you know, mine and my peers' past performance as direct sellers, you know, kind of from a, you know, how can we replicate what's already been done? But then also looking at the total addressable market and setting a stake in the ground and saying, this is, this is what we want to own from the market. This is what we think we realistically can own. 
year by year. So you've got kind of two different build models on on how do you set targets, and that's been it's been much more realistic. Okay, so when you were building these uh, these targets, you said that you were looking at past performances, but uh, how was there any other aspect that was taken into account? Uh, yeah, I mean, we looked at we looked at what we had in pipeline. You know, a big part of a big part of this build was 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 handing off pipeline we had in the hopper to some of these new sales representatives so that they could they could start and have kind of something to work on right away. Um, you know, that worked much better in some regions than others. You know, there were inherently regions where we didn't have a ton of activity, just given that we had such a small sales force. Um, we looked at we looked at some market research that we had available from the analysts in our space uh, that that would kind of provide decision insights around how many deal cycles were, were run in the prior 12 months. We They provide us insight on how many of those deal cycles they they knew about that we were included in, how many of those that we won. Um, and so we, we were able to back into, you know, if, if there are 60 deal cycles and we were involved in 10, you know, we think that there's opportunity to maybe get into half of them. So there's 20 more deal cycles extrapolate out you know what each deal looks like based on average deal size and, and say okay that's that's what the total go get is and we think we can win you know 10% of it so we we kind of looked at this from multiple different perspectives and then we took one of the things that we did less related to target setting but much more related to providing our our sales directors the the information and focus they needed to to go attack their territories was we looked at what is our ideal prospect profile and how how many of them are there per uh, per region so that we could kind of create these balanced regions for our sales directors and, and then saying you know if there's a hundred targets per region how many how many of those targets can we actively engage in deal cycles how many of those can we win so you've got you've got kind of four different ways that we've built up to where do we want to set targets and then for the first year because we brought on five sellers this year, we said, you know, this is a build year and what can they, what can they realistically do understanding that our deal cycles are long. Well, and did you set your targets so that they were uh, achievable, just barely achievable or overachievable? Uh, great question. I mean, I think that they were fair targets. They, they assumed, you know, our, our targets for this year were uh, that our, our reps sell two average deals. Uh, and most of our most of our sales directors inherited, you know, anywhere from, you know, five to ten million dollars of pipeline. So so very realistic. Uh, we don't cap at this point. We don't cap our commissions. So there's there's tons of incentive for our sales directors to overperform. Um, I think you know, and I I mean, I set the target. So I think they're very achievable. I think they're a little bit low given where kind of this market is pretty hot uh, in the United States right now. So I think that they're their targets that can be easily beat, but they require you to work hard. Um, you know, so I, I look at I look at my sales directors, and I've got I've got a really wide range of individuals on the ground. Um, I have one that's probably managing thirty five to forty million dollars of pipeline, and he will most certainly crush his uh, his target this year. I've got you know another who's he's a, he's a big game hunter. He's he's not managing a ton of opportunities. Um, but anyone will crush his his quota. So, you know, you've got different strategies uh, throughout the team, but I think that the overarching thought is that the the targets are pretty reasonable. Um, so you started uh, when you started over fresh. You had a sales ops guy or a 
an analyst uh, and a, and somebody to help with the RFPs before you actually had a, a lot of people to to sell. Uh, it seems a little heavy on on one side. Why did you guys do it this way, and what were the pros and cons? Uh, great question. Yeah, and I'll I'll, actually, I'll make it heavier. So we had um, a sales ops guy. Uh, I had a sales engineer who I brought on probably kind of first second quarter of 2017, and then we had our, our RFP analyst. Um, it was heavy for a couple of reasons. One, I I covered the entire country and and carried the majority of the company sales target. So I I became uh, a very thin resource uh, given given the sales resources we had on the ground. Um, so so part of part of the team build was really trying to build redundancy in in my time so that I could be in front of customers more frequently and have an engine behind me, you know, pumping out proposals, processing RFPs, doing our deal desk process, um, pricing, helping with demos, et cetera, et cetera. I'm a I'm a pretty hands-on seller. So like if if there's going to be a demo, I really want to drive it mostly because I've been here long enough. I know the ins and outs of the product. I know how to make it look great. I know how to flex it to address different customer needs. Um, and so that was that was something that was really taxing on my time. And so we brought on a, a, a really excellent sales engineer who she's just a sponge. And she, she sits in demos with me and she's been able to, you know, really not only develop an understanding of the product, but understand the way that I position the product and have been successful with it. Uh, and that was that was really successful. You know, I think individually, uh, the pod. I won't say that I did this all, but you know, as sales leader, as an individual contributor, drove you know over thirty million dollars of sales last year. Um, so what we what we wanted to do then is as we exited and built and hired the new sales directors was how do we take those those resources who had this crash course and how to sell what we do over the the prior twelve months and and really bring all of their knowledge together to inform. You know, the the support structure for the sales team going forward, and you know that that helped influence staffing models. It helped influence our our training program. That my head of sales ops and my my sales engineer really built uh, as I was out in the field. So it's been a it's been a really interesting build process. Uh, it seems uh, so. You were actually carrying a quota, and you were still driving business while you were developing the 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 backbone and, and the structure. Yeah, I mean, and that and that was by design. I, you know, over the over the last seven months, I've been ramping down my individual contribution as as the new sellers are ramping up, as as kind of the the curse of our long deal cycle time. I couldn't really pull myself out of certain deals right when we brought a new team onto the ground, and also I had to I had to be a hedge to the fact that you know we're hiring a team of five all at the same time. They needed to learn the product. How to sell this product um, and really get comfortable in their territory. So for the last seven months, I've I've still had a partial allocation as a direct contributor. Um, the difference being, in in all of those cases, I've been flanked by one of the new team members. So so they're learning uh, in the field by experience by watching. So the the first half of the year, I was I was certainly still running and and contributing as a as a individual contributor while I was while I was also overseeing the build and training of the of the new team. It must be hard to uh, to let go of that process and be uh, let go of the being part of the sales process itself. Yeah, I mean, it, it what's it, it, it's not as hard to let go, but what's I think harder for me now is as a as a leader, like sitting sitting on the sidelines in a meeting, you know, kind of playing the the sales executive role, where 
know, I'm supposed to tell the prospect, you know, how much we care about them and how committed we are to their success and, and really backing up that sales director. Um, what's hard is, you know, I'll hear a question asked and I'll see the sales engineer and the sales director take the question and respond to it and thinking, well, that's not the way I would answer it. But, you know, you, you can't, you can't edit your team. You can't say, well, let me jump in and add one more thing. Um, because it, it, it minimizes confidence in that team that's sitting at the forefront of the deal. So it's been a real, uh, it's been a real learning opportunity for me to, to bite my tongue. And, you know, I've had my mouth filled with blood a couple of times. <laughs> I'm sure. So do you, do you give them the feedback afterwards or do you just kind of let most of it slide unless it's really uh, vital? It depends. Uh, you know, I, I think there's this, this balance of, you know, providing constructive feedback, uh, but also letting these guys take and, and learn from their own mistakes. Cause I certainly did, you know, there was no one, there was no one sitting in the room with me biting their tongue when I was figuring this out. You know, I look back at the way that I handled certain deal cycles, deals that I've lost. And I'm so grateful that there wasn't, uh, you know, my boss wasn't sitting in the room with me. So I, I understand the pressure that they're under. Um, and, you know, I, I have feedback from the sales engineers who say that, you know, the, the level of nervousness that some of our sales directors have when I'm in the room versus when they're not is, is, is measurable. Um, so, you know, depending on, on how the feedback needs to be provided, I will. Um, I, I kind of keep a, a running crib sheet for each of the sales directors. And as we have time, you know, whether it's traveling together and we're sitting in a bar and we're in an airport, you know, I, I'll be like, hey, you know, that meeting a couple of weeks ago, I was just thinking about one of the things and I think you could you could handle this situation a little bit differently, just food for thought. But typically, I'm, I'm trying to let them learn and, and experience uh, in the field themselves. There have been a couple of times, though, you know, there have been a couple of times where, where it's been, you know, the feedback needs to be given more immediately. I have I have a really talented team. Um, but one of the challenges for all these guys is how do they tell the story of the company? And I have my own story of this company because I've been here for so long. I've, I've worn so many hats. I've, I've been through so many pivots. Um, so I have a, a pretty impassioned company introduction that helps credential, you know, why we deserve to be at the table in this selection process. And, and as we train these sales reps, I think they've heard me give that pitch and they're trying to replicate it. And, my biggest feedback to all of them is they need to make this story their own. They can't tell the story of, you know, we used to be this consultancy and then we pivoted um, as well as I can because I lived it and I, I worked through the pains and trials and tribulations. You know, I, I need them to say, you know, hey, I've been working in healthcare IT for 15 years and I've really focused on helping transition the U.S. healthcare system from, you know, X to Y and, and, and make that story about, you know, why they're excited to be there, not just who we are. And so that's been a big piece of feedback I'm continuously giving to the team as they're getting more comfortable with our message and our market. I think that's a really powerful piece of advice there that, uh, that people should be paying attention to, you know, because everybody wants to tell the business story, but I just came into the business and I'm, you know, a month old. How can I sit here and, and say it with passion? You're, you're right. You need, to, you need to make it your own and bring your experience into it and why you're choosing to work at the company it will sell the company much better. Absolutely. While you're building uh, the sales team and the structure and everything, but you're still having to work on deals, how did you manage uh, to to keep both of those in focus? And, and what did you do to, to, let me rephrase that. How did you manage to continue working on your pipeline and grow and build the team? Uh, I have no idea. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I look back at uh, the last 12 months and uh, I have these weeks where I'm like, I don't know how I survived that week. But, you know, uh, more seriously, I had I have an excellent team. My My head of sales ops is one of the most talented leaders this company has hired in the past three years. Um, he's been a valuable resource to me, to our CEO, to our head of product. He is, he's got this excellent sales mind where, you know, he, he should be a seller um, because he just, he just knows this process inside and out. He's very, very um, process oriented, but not, not in the sense that, you know, he's putting in processes for the sake of process, but putting in processes where they need to be put in. Um, my sales engineer uh, that, that, that I hired, you know, the, the first one, she's just, she's a taskmaster. And, you know, once a day we have a call and she's pulling information out of me, you know, what, what can I help you with? And when I hired her, I, I interviewed her at one of the, the industry's biggest trade shows. We were sitting outside of this trade show in Orlando. It was, you know, a thousand degrees and we both had not seen the light of day for four days. Cause you're in the convention center. And she said to me, she's like, you know, what do, what do you need in this role? And I said, honestly, I need someone who can take work off of my plate. And I'm, I'm not great at delegating. Uh, I've gotten a lot better, but I need you to look at my calendar and I need you to sit in meetings and I need you to take things away from me. Um, because I'm like a goat. I'll just, I'll just keep eating and eating and eating until I explode um, from a work perspective. And, and so she's been really helpful at sitting in meetings and saying, okay, these were the five takeaways. I'm going to take four of them. I need your advice on this fifth one, but then I'll, I'll get it over to someone else. So that was a big part of, of how, you know, they helped, they both helped me make this transition. And, and when, when you know, the opportunity for me to make the transition came to be, that was my, my first meeting with them was we're going to make this together and, and we're all going to elevate in this company together. Um, and it's been really successful. So, you know, I take, I take a lot less credit for it than, than really the credit, uh, that they're due. Uh, and then I think, you know, the other piece too, is as, as we started to make the transition as the sellers hit the ground, it became really easy for me to start to hand off things to these sales directors because my, my core mission changed, you know, my success was no longer defined by what did I bring in? Um, our board was going to, was looking for our new sellers to close deals. So it became really easy for me to hand off deals and and pipeline to these guys and help them close it because the sooner I got one of these guys producing, uh, the better the better the team and and really my progression looked. So there was this really you know I was supported by a fantastic team and then the the right motivation was behind getting these guys successful early. Uh, sounds like you uh, you hired really well. Yeah, hiring was hard and I'm still not done. You know, it's I wanted to be done with hiring by the end of the first quarter. Um, but I, I, I refuse to hire someone who I, if I, if I'm sitting in front of someone in the hiring process and, and I could see myself sitting down with them seven months later, having the hard conversation that this isn't working and they need to, to move on, um, I won't hire them. And that's been really difficult because it's, it's slowed our progression. There's, there's quota coverage that I don't have covered for next year because I haven't been able to make a hire, but uh, part of part of building this team, and and this is where my sales engineer and head of sales ops, we we all said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna hire the right talent, and we're not gonna be impatient. We're gonna we know it's out there, we know we can find it. Um, so hiring has been really challenging, but the sales directors we have on the ground have the absolute right, right profile for the business. 
Wow. So, so if you're meeting with somebody and they're, you actually get some, something they say or do makes you think like, oh, this won't work out. That it's like a no go for you. Yeah. I mean, I can give you an example. I was, I was interviewing, I have one, one open sales leadership, sales director position. And this one, you, you asked about roadblocks. This has been the position that just haunts me. I, I had filled it in back in December. The sales director that we hired didn't show up on his first day um, for training and called me this, that, that later that day saying he, he accepted a different offer and he didn't know how to tell me. And so we've been, we've been searching. I had another guy who, who wanted the role, but he, he demanded that a certain state be in his territory. But another rep that I'd already hired was based in that state. I had another guy that I really wanted and we got into a, you know, a salary, a salary race and a title race with another company and we lost that one. Um, and so I, I had this candidate in uh, last week and really, really experienced sales professional. Um, and it's, this territory is relatively cold. And I, I said that to him, I said, this is a really cold territory. I need to know, you know, let's talk through how, how we can work together to, to build some opportunities in this, in this territory. And his response to me was like, well, I could probably spend, you know, an hour or two a day prospecting. And I just remember thinking, you know, this is not an hour or two a day. I look at, I, I mentioned the rep that's managing you know, 30 to $40 million of pipeline. He's, he's scheduled back to back from eight to six every day, whether that's, you know, cold calls, emails, mailing out packages. He's just, he's sending out 75 to a hundred different touch points a day. Um, and that's, that's not a couple of hours a day. And I just, I just could see myself looking this guy in the eye and six months saying, Hey, you haven't built enough pipeline despite us giving you the right, the right tools to do it. And, and you're not putting the time into it. And I just, I told him that I said, you know, I, I just don't think this is, you know, at, at our build phase at our kind of maturity level, this isn't the opportunity for you and, and you're not the sales leader for us. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough thing when you have a position you need to fill. And especially like you said, you've got quota for next, next year that needs to be met. And uh, this is delaying that. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's good for our team on the ground, though, because every, every opportunity that's cropping up in that, in that territory, I'm just kind of round robin handing off. Um, so, you know, the team on the ground is, is loving it, but you know, I, I need a, I need another individual on the ground. Yeah. Are you still querying a coda yourself? Uh, I was for the first half of the year, uh, for the second half of the year, I, I have no direct con contributor quota. Okay. So you finally passed everything off your pipeline off to, to everyone else. Yeah, there are, there are like two or three house accounts that, that I have responsibility for. Um, but there's, I mean, I guess, I, I guess I'm carrying a quota because I'm responsible for the team number and, and any gap between what the team hits and, and what the company needs. Um, but yeah, uh, for, for the most part, all of the, all of the opportunities in pipeline have been handed off to, to the rest of the team. Well, I think there was a lot here, Michael, that we, we covered and uh, a lot to, a lot for people to take in. I appreciate you coming. Is there a way for people to reach out to you? Absolutely. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me, uh, Find me on LinkedIn. I'm I'm pretty active there. Uh, or folks can reach out to me via email. It's just first name dot last name. So Michael dot at Arcadia dot io. Great, and I'll put that uh, that link for LinkedIn in into the show notes. Great, thank you. Great, thanks so much, Adam. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. 
To contact Adam about consulting services or speaking engagements, visit StartupSalesPodcast.com or email StartupSalesPodcast at gmail.com. All right, Michael, let's end things off with the final five. What is your favorite sales or leadership book? Uh, right now, it's Accidental Sales Manager, I think, because it, it, uh, it's my story, you know, being, being a high-performing rep who found themselves in sales management and having to continue to sell as an individual contributor while you build a team. And, you know, how do you, how do you balance that? and then learn how to motivate a sales team and, and cultivate and build talent. So I, it's, it's my favorite right now. Why do you say right now? Oh, cause I, I am, uh, I'm inherently ADHD about these things. So I'll, I'll read a book and it becomes my favorite book and then until it's been replaced. So, you know, for, for a long time, I, I my answer would have been the challenger sale because it was probably the book that I read that made me realize that I was a salesperson and there was no shame in it. Uh, so I'm, I'm sure there's going to be another one that comes along that, that replaces the accidental sales manager. <laughs> I, uh, I very much uh, understand you. I'm, I have a goal this year to read 30 books because uh, normally I only get one or two in. And so this year I'm, on, I'm above schedule, but uh, every book I read is like, wow, this is my favorite. And then in the next one, no, this is my favorite. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Do you have somebody that you follow or read for sales or leadership ideas? I read um, John Barrows' blog, the Make It Happen blog. I, I like the way he thinks about the different challenges that we face in sales all the time, um, and, and it's always you know pretty relevant to the to the seasonality. So he had a, a whole piece recently about the summer doldrums, and it's something we all feel. Um, I'm I'm pretty active in the Reddit sales community. Uh, I like again being a little ADD. I like the the fact that you can log in and see ten different conversations going at once. Uh, and then uh, another sales leader friend of mine turned me on to a, a Google group, the the Modern Sales Professionals, which is all around you know the the challenge that we're all facing and how do you use technology uh, and new tools to scale your organization. And I've you know I talked about some of my excellent talent. I actually found my sales ops leader through that group, so I've I've been uh, a long time lurker on that organization. Nice. I think this is uh, these are two avenues, Reddit and Google, that. Most people are not uh, utilizing. Are you available 24-7 or do you have strict personal time boundaries? Uh, so I'm available 24-7, although most of my, my long-term customers know that uh, it has to be a, a real emergency if you call me before between the hours of like 5 and 9 a.m. I really like my mornings, um, mostly because I, I'm, a, I'm a night owl. I'm up until probably 2 or 3 every day, and, and then I sleep until 8. So it has to be really brutal to get me then. But if I have a meeting or if I'm traveling, uh, yeah, I'm available. What is your favorite tool used for sales? Again, right now, I really like Yesware. Um, we implemented both Yesware and Pandadoc this year, and I've, I've had a lot of fun with both those tools. You know, I, I feel like a little bit of a sellout to say LinkedIn, but LinkedIn still is probably the best sales tool that I think we have at our disposal. So LinkedIn is your best, but your favorite is Yesware. Yeah. I mean, it's just creepy and, and in the best possible way. And it helps, you know, you can, you can really suss out what's happening with a prospect uh, if they've gone silent and, and they're, they're not reading your emails or if they are reading your emails. So it's, it's been really helpful to our team, especially building the cadences for outside sales. Last question. What one piece of advice do you have for all the founders, CEOs, or the sales leadership out there? 
I think the, the best piece of advice is sales doesn't just happen. Uh, you know, you, you need a plan and you need to account for the natural cadence of this, of these builds. I think when we, when we went down this pathway, our, our leadership just said, well, we'll hire some more people and they'll figure it out. And the, the real difference of this build of our sales team versus prior is, is we had a plan. We knew our deal cycle timeline. We knew that it wasn't going to happen overnight. And, and that's been really instrumental to, to setting and, and maintaining the right expectations as we manage up. Um, so, so make sure you understand those factors because it's, it's critical to understand how your sales are going to be driven by the people on the ground. Great. So sales doesn't just happen. Have a plan. Exactly. Great. Michael, thank you very much again for joining us. Thanks so much, Adam. I appreciate the time today.